This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. Amen. You guys remain standing with us as we continue worshiping by the reading of Luke chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 46 head to 55 it'll be on your screens but if you'd like to worship along with me by reading open it to your bible go ahead and do so and mary said my soul magnifies the lord and my spirit rejoices in god my savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant for behold from now on all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Hey, Jesus, as we, as we get to dive into this song that your mother on earth wrote. Lord, I ask that you will do a work in our hearts of not just acknowledging the beauty of the song and all those kind of things, even though that's sweet. Lord, more than anything else, we'll find the posture of our heart exactly like Mary's was, to exalt you, to lift you up. Heavenly Father, who sent your Son, who gifted us with the fullness of your Spirit. Jesus, I thank you that even though you are Son of God, even like Isaiah 9, 6 shows us, you are also everlasting Father because you and your Father are one. And Father, I don't want to, I don't just want to stare at history this morning, Lord. I want to look back so that I can see all all the reasons I have to hope in the future, but also in the here and now. That you are good, you always have been good, you always will be good. That, you've, that you delight to pour out your mercy on those who have a humble heart. So Father, if there's anything you're going to do in us this morning, humble us. Humble us to make our lives look more like an imitation of what we find in your word. We love you. In your name. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Well, good morning. I love, we, uh, we're going to be in what's called the Magnificat this morning. That's what we just read. Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55. And one thing I've noticed that's been, it's been so cool the past few years of getting to teach more and spend more intentional time in the text to find to like look at a section of scripture and say, Father, what do you intend to convey to your people? Like what, what are the most important things in your heart for those who are going to be gathering on a Sunday? You know? And it's wild because normally I feel like I end up with about four hours of content and then it's kind of like you have to pick the highlight reel 
of the best 30 minutes, and you'll find, I don't know if this is true of everybody else, but I think it's probably pretty consistent, that like the last five to seven minutes of every sermon you hear up here is, is the guys who have spent time in the text being like, okay, how do I fit this last 15 minutes that I've got to convey into seven, you know? And uh, even today, I was thinking about, I was like, man, there's so much beauty in this passage. There's so much beauty surrounding the story of Mary, and I kind of feel like the... Um, Smokey and the Bandit, where he's like, uh, got a long way to go and a short time to get there. All right, so we've got a lot to cover, a lot to get to today, because there's so much about this text that is it's gorgeous. And one of the reasons that as we're going through Luke 1 over the Christmas story, um, or over this Christmas Eve and over at Advent, is because I wanted the opportunity to get to talk about Mary for a little bit. I love her song. I love her story. But I also know, you know, I grew up, I grew up as a Southern Baptist pastor's kid, which meant that I was like in this very, very Protestant tradition, pretty conservative, you know, I would say. And because of that, I, and I also grew up, my, my dad was actually, he was a Catholic altar boy when he was young for a while, had a lot of Catholic friends. And so a lot of when I would hear people talk about Mary, what I, the first thing I thought of was not the Magnificat. It wasn't even like really the birth story. It was the Catholic-Protestant debate. It was, I remember having so many discussions with people, like these arguments that I would watch unfold of like, oh, well, what about the rosary? How can you pray the rosary? You know, and, and I would, I've had Catholic friends who just love God with all of their heart, and I would have these discussions with them. And I realized that even as I was looking through the story of Mary, that my mind was quickly going to the debates within Christendom rather than staring at the beauty of what God has given us in the text. And so one part of what I'd like to do is I'd like to first of all acknowledge a pendulum swing this morning. I'd like to acknowledge an, there's been an exaltation of the mother of Jesus that I think grieves the mother of Jesus. I think from, I think from the place where she now has a residence in glory, I think she grieves an exaltation. I think today that the thing that would make Mary saddest would be if I would preach a sermon about Mary that didn't exalt Jesus more. That if I preached a sermon from the text of Scripture that had any inclination of lifting up this woman that was used by God in a dramatic way but failed to get to the cross... And I see this, I've seen this exaltation of Mary. I remember going to the Holy Land and seeing some sights that just made my, my stomach feel weird. Going to a place where uh, it was called the, the site of the Assumption, um, where in some traditions they say that that is where Mary never died and went directly into heaven. And we don't find that in the Word of God. And I, don't, I do not think, I think Mary hears that from her placing in heaven right now, and is like, what? Like, where'd you, where'd you get that? You know, like, I think the logic of praying to Mary so that she can take it directly to her son bypasses everything that we see about him being the great intercessor in God's word. And yet, when I grew up in my Protestant tradition, hearing about the excesses of the way that some traditions teach about Mary, I saw a pendulum swing the other way. And it was, oh, man. Now, be careful with that Mary stuff. Be careful. We'd talk about the risk and the danger of lifting up Mary too high, and it was almost like there was this, this demoting of who Mary was. And as I was 
as I was studying the, the birth story, again, even over the past couple months, I thought, you know what, it would be fair for us to say we want to have a right biblical view of the woman that God chose to make the vessel by which he would bring the Messiah to the earth. This young girl, teenager, potentially some people think 12, this young girl that God used as the vessel by which he brought divinity itself in human form incarnationally to the world. And so what I'd love today is to not lift Mary too high, and I would love to not push Mary too low, but I would love to say, what does the Word of God tell us? What does the Word of God tell us about who she is, about her heart, and how does that, more importantly than anything else we do, how does that further lift up and exalt the name of Jesus? And I think that's what she would want. I think that's what, I think she would grieve any sermon that remained about her and, and failed to become about her son. So what we're going to do is, I've been saying this a lot in the last couple of weeks even, that um, a phrase I've been pondering in my heart is Mary would ponder many things in her heart, and it's this, we cannot afford to do more than the Bible, and we cannot afford to do less than the Bible. So how do we make sure that we are a people that are consistent with the Word of God? If Scripture is God-breathed, and if I have access to know the voice of God without hesitation, without wondering or concern, like, guys, I... It's beautiful because Scripture has proven itself to me. And the, the one thing, the one thing this book is no longer to me, there, this is not a question mark. This is a period at the end of every sentence to me. Not because I'm like trying to dig deep to be like, oh, Kurt, trust it and believe it. Like, no. Scripture has proven itself. I tell people all the time, if a book claimed to be alive, it would do some pretty weird things. And that is what Scripture says in Hebrews. It is living. It is active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces you. And Scripture does things that normal books can't do for me. I can read the same thing a hundred times and get a hundred different lessons. God will do things through Scripture that he does not do through other books. This word is living. It is active. It has proven itself to me time and time again. And because of that, we want to make sure that we are people that don't do more than the Bible, but we also refuse to do less than the Bible. And so knowing that we are in a culture that has a hundred different pendulum swings, all kinds of things, from liberal conservative to the way that we view Mary to thoughts about different theological traditions to political perspectives, everything around you, the water that you swim in, the culture that you and I have inherited as a culture full of pendulums with lots of dangers to swing one way or another. And the only way that we're going to remain balanced is by being people who submit to the heart of the text. And so, let's open up God's Word. Luke 1, we've got not just the Magnificat, but we've also got the story. The story of what happened to Mary, that she is visited by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel got busy in Luke 1. There's like, he visits Mary, then later on he's going to visit Zechariah in the temple. He visits Mary and he tells her what's going to happen. He tells her there's going to be a baby born. And she says, how's that possible? I've never been with a man. And he's like, with God all things are possible. This child that's going to be born to you, He's going to be the Savior of the world. He's actually going to be your own redemption. Then in Matthew 2, we see what happens next in the story, that this is probably likely 18 months, two years later, something like that, that there's these men that come from Orientar, you know, and they come and visit, and they bring, they bring these gifts, and the gifts end up being used partially 
for the journey they will have to go on to flee Herod so that the baby is not killed when he begins to wreak havoc on all the children in Bethlehem. And they move to Egypt, just like it was prophesied in the Old Testament, out of Egypt I've called my son. And they move back. They find out that Herod's son is still in power, and they're like, ah, that's a little too close for comfort. So they move to Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene. So she has been visited by angels. She's had these men show up following a star who give them money and financial resource so they can go on this nomadic journey to Egypt and then come back. In Luke 2, they go to the temple. And when Jesus is 12, I don't know if you remember this, it's kind of a weird, a weird part of the story even when you think about the relationship between Mary and Jesus that she leaves him. They're in a big group of people. They're traveling with a lot of, a lot of folks, and they just assumed, oh, Jesus, I don't know if he was like a real just extroverted little kid, but super active, and like, oh, he's probably hanging with cousins or something. And, and they can't find him the next day. They're like, well, we still don't see him, and they have to go back and get him, and it's three days that he's away from him. And when they find him, he's not freaking out. He's apparently some, somewhere he slept and stayed safe, and he's fine, and he said, why did you not assume that I would be in my father's house? In John chapter 2, we see the first interaction they have as adults. We don't know a whole lot historically with certainty, but there's much reason to assume that likely Joseph has passed away by this point and that Jesus would have been as the firstborn, the primary caretaker for Mary. And in John chapter 2, they're at a wedding, a family wedding together. and They run out of wine, and Mary says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says, what's that got to do with me? And then she goes to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And he says, fill up these jars of water and take it, take it to the head of the party. He does, and he has turned the water into wine. See, in Matthew 12, she shows up as Jesus is teaching. She's there with some of his brothers, all right? And so Mary did later on have many more children, all right? So there's these siblings that are there, and she, she goes with some of the siblings, and some of the siblings at this point have no belief in what their brother is claiming to be. And they show up to one of the houses where he's teaching. And they can't get through because the crowd's so big. Somebody comes to him and says, hey, your mom and your siblings are outside. And he says something that is a really weird statement when you think about, um, when you think about wanting to lift Mary up. He says, you know who my mom really is? Every woman who obeys God. That's who my mom is. And he leaves her outside. Leaves the siblings outside as well. John 19 we fast forward through the ministry and life of Jesus, and he gets to the foot of the cross. And when he's at the foot of the cross, in the middle of his agony and suffering, he does something incredible, and he takes care of his mother. And we know that she is there. And we know that she's been there throughout. She has followed him on this journey. She has been with him as he's taught. We don't know a lot about what was happening in her own heart. We know that she had pondered all these things in her heart, that at this point, imagine, you know, like for... 2023, when all these things are unfolding in the life of Christ, for her, that was like all the things from the birth narrative were back in the 90s. It's this history that she's been hiding in her heart for 30 years, wondering what's going to come of this. And now all of a sudden, she's at the foot of a cross after all these hopes, wondering, was it all for naught? And Jesus says, John the Beloved, this is now your mother. You take care of her. And he makes sure that his mother is cared for. And for a long time, I kind of, in my mind, that was sort of where the story of Mary ended. And as I was setting, I realized, wait, her story doesn't end there. It is seven weeks, seven weeks after the death of her son, seven and a half weeks, about 53 days after the death of her son, something incredible happens. 
She spent the last 10 days in a room with 120 other people. Some of them potentially hiding out of fear that there's going to be repercussions for their commitment to Jesus. And she's been in this room and she's watched is the 11 men that were closest to her son picked Matthias, Matthias to be the replacement for Judas by casting lots. And then in, in chapter 2 of Acts, she's in this room when suddenly a wind comes through and the Spirit of God descends on this room. And they began speaking in tongues that they didn't know in languages they'd never learned. And we don't know what Mary spoke, but I just imagine here's this woman very little education in that time period. And maybe she walks outside and just starts speaking Persian, even though she's never learned it. And she was one of the people there as the Spirit descended. She was one of the first members of the early church, one of the 120 that began, that began to see everything unfold that she had hoped for when she had been pondering these things in her heart. And so if we're going to have a right view of Mary, I want to make sure that we, don't, that we don't exalt her too high, but we don't demote her too low. Because Scripture, Scripture wants us to see her in a beautiful way. As a woman who was lowly, who there was nothing, the thing is, guys, there, there was nothing exterior that would have been impressive about Mary. Nothing about her that would have been impressive. She lived in a time and a culture where women wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have had access to much education. And so the fact that she, what I'm going to say next is pretty incredible, that she found a way to become a woman of the word. And we know that because when you read the prayer, when you read the song that she wrote in Luke chapter 1, it is incredibly consistent with what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 2 when another woman, a woman named Hannah, had been grieved because she couldn't have a child. She was, uh, she was not the only wife of her husband. Her husband had had other children with another wife. This wife was incredibly unkind to her. She was mistreated. Um, she was bullied. Um, she was abused. And she grieved to God, and she went to grieve in the temple. She grieved so intensely that she was accused of being drunk. And she told the priest, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm calling out to God. And God gave her her request. And allowed her to have a son. And his name would be Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she writes this prayer over this baby. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more severely proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble, the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. When you look at it, there's these first five verses line up strategically with the, with the, um, the prayer of Mary with the Magnificat. She had become a student of God's word. I don't know if this meant that she just was consistently um, that she was consistently at the synagogue as often as she could be, that she was at the temple regularly. We don't know exactly how she became a woman of the word, but she found a way in a culture that would not permit her to know how to read or to have access to books, even if she could, that she found a way to hide God's word in her heart. And when she saw Hannah's prayer, when she, 
realized what was happening to her with this angel coming to her, she realized something supernatural is happening to me. Supernatural, but not, not entirely unprecedented. Now, unprecedented for sure in the sense that no one has ever carried the Messiah. No one has ever carried the Son of God. No one has ever had this virgin birth. But, but she knew God has used women who had nothing on the exterior to look impressive. He has done this before. He's done this with women like Hannah. And Hannah would have a son named Samuel who would become a priest himself, who would anoint David the king, of whom it was said that the Messiah would sit on David's throne. There would be a priest come before the Messiah as well. And he would be born to a woman named Elizabeth, which is where the Magnificat is actually written, is outside the home of Elizabeth who would have John the Baptist, the one who would come before the Messiah. So the one thing I want us to consider, two things, to consider Hannah's prayer, to consider what it meant when it says that Mary was hiding and treasuring these things in her heart. The journey she went on through an understanding of the Old Testament text, knowing what she'd come from, knowing who God was, who he had always been, and how she could assume that he would be faithful to his word. I also want you to consider Zechariah because what one of the things, and I'm going to let um, next week, um, the week after that, Andrew and my dad are going to be preaching on the prophecy of Zechariah. And I love it. It's, it's Luke chapter 1 at the end of it. I encourage you to read it before you get here next week. But one thing that you are in, invited to see, one thing you're invited to see with the story of Mary right before the story of Zechariah, is there is this man who is a priest of the Most High. He has lived in that role for all of his adult life. He's been in it for decades. He is likely esteemed. He is given the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies, and there he meets Gabriel. And in this moment where he is in the place that should be the place of deepest trust in God, having a vision of an angel, what does Zechariah, the man who should have been elevated in that society as a man of faith, what does he do? He doubts. And you and I are asked to look at Mary and to set her next to Zechariah and to see the response of a potentially 12-year-old heart next to a 60-something-year-old man coming before an angel of God faithless. And if you remember, Zechariah is made mute until the birth of his son. And what we're invited to see is to look at these two side by side and to recognize Zechariah doubts and Mary sings. Zechariah doubts, but Mary sings. She is a woman of faith. As I was studying, I found this, this quote that I, I loved, that what Mary acknowledges throughout her song, is that he lifts up the lowly and he brings down those who have elevated themselves. That he lifts up and he brings down. And this is going to be true for the rest of Jesus' ministry. You're going to see this over and over and over again. You see it in the song of Hannah. You see it in the song of Mary. You see it through the life of Christ. And you see it in the evidence of the way he still works in the church today. And I found this quote, I love that God shows his strength not by recruiting the strong, but by rescuing the weak. Christmas turns the world upside down. 
as you realize this, this birth that Mary is preparing for, this is going to be the most humble event in all of human history. Divinity taking on humanity. And we use that word a lot at Christmas, the incarnation. It just means like God came down. Like I like to think about it. This probably isn't, I think if I unpack this a lot theologically, there would be dangers in this statement. But just for my own sake, it's like God coming down in a human costume. You know, I remember as a kid thinking about it, like I remember hearing about Superman, be like Superman, like the one thing he can't be around is kryptonite. And I'm like, but Jesus came down wrapped in flesh. Like the one thing, it was like Superman coming down in a kryptonite suit. You know what I mean? Like that's Jesus coming down wrapped in humanity here on earth. And Mary gets to be the vessel that God uses. And she realizes her unworthiness. She realizes it. And she acknowledges it over and over in this text. I love, I love the way that the song kind of proceeds. It says there at the, at the end from 49 to 55, Mary disappears. She disappears pretty much from the text. She might talk about what God has done for her a little bit. But one thing that I thought was so beautiful, in 49 to 55, these last seven verses in this, in this passage, all right, the last seven verses Every, the subject of every single verb is God. The subject of every verb for the finality, for the, for the, like this last two-thirds of her song, the subject of every verb is God. Because she lifts up and exalts the Father who has lifted her up. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Guys, this birth, this birth that she is preparing for is going to be the most humble event in all of human history until this baby that's born will redefine humility forever by dying on a cross. And what we're meant to see, what we're meant to see is that Jesus' humility was not an event at the end of his life. It was the totality of his life. And that God's calling to you as an imitator of God as a person who would stare at sovereignty himself and wonder what does it mean to be like him, it's the most beautiful irony that has ever happened in all of human history. That if you want to be like the greatest, you turn into the least. You turn into the least. I found this, uh, buddy Jordan Amos told me earlier this week, he found this quote, I love this. There was a time in human history when the presence of God felt like the uneasiness of morning sickness. That God was so humble that he would be willing to dwell, not just on earth, not to condescend just to earth, not even just a baby in a manger as he would become, but he would condescend to being a developing infant in a womb. And the primary lesson that I think you and I are invited to see is this. He does the most through the least. That's it. That's who he's always been. 
That's who he's always going to be. He does the most through the least. And then there's a secondary lesson. And this is, this is probably the, this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. This is where the story ceases to be a 2,000-year-old story and it becomes a modern-day tale, if you let it. Because he who used to do the most through the least still does the most through the least. And the only thing, the only thing that you and I have to do is this. Admit we're the least. That's it. That's, that's it. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between a friendship with God and distance from him. Are you willing to admit I'm the least? Because he, he lifts up the humble and he lays low the proud. That wasn't, Mary wasn't saying he's doing that specifically in the context of the birth story of Christ. She's saying he always has and he always will. So the carryover for you and I is not just to appreciate a 12-year-old girl who got to carry the messianic promise around in her womb. It's to say, am I humble? Am I humble? Am I willing to admit I'm the least? Because guys, if not, if not, this is a terrifying song. Because do you see what he does with the most? The most go away empty and starving. The most turn into the least for all eternity. She's setting a precedence. A precedent that God is continuing to this very day. That he does the most through the least. And as I put up on the screen, congratulations. You're the least. Now the irony is, you're the least whether you admit it or not. <laughs> That's the weird thing. It's like, if you never come to terms with it, it doesn't make you the most. You actually still are the least. The only person that doesn't know that you're the least would be yourself. And so you live under this false pretense that you're something special. And I love that. I love that. I think that's part of the irony for me in seeing the way that the church has responded to Mary historically is that Mary constantly called us back to this recognition that she was the least, that she wasn't the most, that she didn't want, she didn't hope that this story would turn out for her elevation. That she wanted this story to result as all good stories do and the glorification of the Son of God. I'm going to read one thing over you as we close, but before we do, um, this will be our invitation into, into communion today. And uh, I do love that that baby that was in her womb did not just show up to display humility through the birth story. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful story that shows us many things about the character of God that would have likely been shocking to this first audience because I know they're shocking to me oftentimes. I heard a story this week about um, the early church um, in, a, in a Celtic land. In the early church, they were there establishing, establishing the kingdoms in the first few centuries of the church and that Every night they had a prayer time. They had a daily prayer routine with each other. And what they would do is they would wait till right at dusk. And every night, you know, before electricity, you'd have to light your lamps as the sun was going down. And so before they lit the first lamp of the night, they did the same thing every day. 
they would gather together. They would stare at the sun as it was going down. They would look at the oncoming darkness, and they would, as one say, I beg to differ. Whew. I heard that, and I got, like, chills. I was like, what? Ooh, that is, like, beast mode, you know? Like, come on. Just, like, stare at the oncoming darkness and say, I beg to differ. And all of a sudden, I realized, like, wait, what they meant is a metaphorical truth. What they meant is a regular commendation to them as a community of believers to live as light in a dark place. Jesus expressed quite literally when he was on a cross, his body was being broken, his blood was being shed. Darkness enveloped the land. From noon to three on the day of his death. And he stared at oncoming darkness on your behalf and on mine. He looked it in the eye and he said, I beg to differ. And three days later, he proved it by raising from a grave. What I want to read over you is just John chapter 1. As we do, I'll invite the band to come back up. We'll close out with this today. And I love, I love the Magnificat. I love the story of Mary. I love who she is because she was a woman who exalted Jesus. She carried him in a womb. She pondered what all these things meant in her heart, but ultimately, she became a woman that exalted Jesus. She praised him. She celebrated what he represented for all these promises that had been made and all these promises that have been kept and those that have been made that we have not seen come to pass, we can trust they will be. In John chapter 1, the way that John describes Jesus coming is this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I invite you to come and take communion and to remember that that baby that was born to a young girl by the promise of God grew up to become a man who would die on a cross, who would rise from the grave, who would ascend into heaven, and who will now come again. Jesus, I thank you for the truth of your word, I love, I love, uh, just like Mary, Father, I love pondering these things in my heart. I love thinking about what you've done before, what I can trust you will do again. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Lord, I know you still do the most through the least. 
And so what I ask you right now is that as we sing and as we respond, as we remember your broken body and your shed blood, will you convince us we're the least? I know it's true whether or not we're convinced, but Lord, I'm just asking you, convince us. Convince us that we're the least. So that, so that you will be exalted by doing the most through us. Do something so big in us, Father, that no one could dare look at us and say, oh, that was really good intentions, good organization. That was a really cool community of people that just did a profound thing. Father, do something so big that people look and say, there is no way. There's no way that's compatible. The work that they have done is not compatible with who they are. And as a result, may they glorify the name of Jesus. Do that in us and do that through us for your own glory's sake, your name, amen.